Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Can you hear me all the way back there? Okay. Hello. It's very nice to be back here. And um, I do feel like it's a second home. And it's also nice to look around and see so many familiar faces. So the subject that I'd like to explore tonight, what was the title of it? (laughs) (laughs) Commitment. It had a subtitle, but I don't remember what it was. Um, Basically, what I want to talk about is commitment. Um, And um, I want to tell some stories and um, see where things go. But I also want to make sure that as I'm speaking, you feel comfortable to interrupt me. Just put up your hand if there's any questions you have um, or anything you want to clarify or debate or uh, express your anger at um, as we speak together. So, (laughs) I think I'll start with a quote. I've been spending some time lately reading Thomas Merton, who's been very inspiring um, for me, because one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is um, what... I can't even get to the quote, I have to... (laughs) One of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, what yoga is going to become as it um, expresses itself in this very culture. I don't think that there is any such thing as a pure yoga that's untouched. Um, Whenever yoga expresses itself, it always expresses itself in a culture. And as soon as it gets touched by people in that culture, um, it changes. And so to think that there is some pure yoga outside of culture um, gets us into dangerous territory where we start to import ideas from a much older culture that are very relevant, um, but we don't see them as being rooted in a particular culture. So Buddhism, for example, does not look 
like it did in India when it goes to China and then when it goes to Japan and then when it goes to Tibet and now as it's planting roots here. And likewise with yoga. And that's actually a good thing. And I think that it's a good thing when we're grounded in practice. That when we're grounded in practice and we start to understand these teachings from the ground up, then we can start to wrestle with these teachings so that they come alive in this life, in this body, in this gender, in this culture, etc., etc. And I think sometimes in communities, you see this in the academic community, for example, we think of yoga, one of the images I like to use is a kind of mobile in our house right now, we have quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. And um, when you touch a mobile, what happens? Well, the whole thing moves. Mm-hmm. You know? And sometimes I think we get worried that if we touch yoga, it's going to break mm-hmm. or something. Or it's going to become impure. If you touch the mobile, it's going to collapse. But that's not actually what happens. When you touch yoga, all of the different pieces of yoga move. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we're going to explore as a teacher training group this weekend is how to be intelligent in how we go about touching it and studying whether our practice is actually working. And so tonight what I'd like to talk about is um, what aspects of our practice we're committed to and how that kind of commitment changes how we think about commitment. Mm. So Thomas Merton. (laughs) The reason for Thomas Merton is that one of the ways I've been trying to be more creative in thinking about the possibility of engaging yoga and allowing it to change as it comes into this culture is by reading people like Thomas Merton and various people who've wrestled, mostly Christian theologians, who've wrestled with that tradition as it's manifested in different cultures at different times to see what's worked and what hasn't worked. So we're not scared of touching the mobile. Or we don't grab the mobile and give it a new name and patent it and create a cult, etc., etc. So Thomas Merton. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves. Let's draw a parallel between that statement, which seems to be about human love in human relationship with um, Walt Whitman's enlightenment experience. 
I swear the earth shall surely be complete to him or her who shall be complete. The earth remains jagged and broken only to him or her who remains jagged or broken. Mm. Yoga means intimacy. The word yoga literally means that everything is intimately connected with every other thing because we begin to see that there is no such thing as a thing. Everything is interpermeating every other thing. That before the mind gets a hold of things and designates them as things uh, in opposition or in togetherness, there is an inherent intimacy of everything. This is called non-dualism, this is called yoga, this is called nirodaha, this is called samadhi, integration. The complete integration of everything before our preferences get a hold of reality and chop things up. And this is the teaching of yoga. The teaching of yoga is a series of um, techniques to help orient us back to our fundamental nature and that when I am complete in and of myself myself is seen to be everything without beginning and without end but most of the time what we're committed to are habits of perception that split things up into I, me, mine, you, yours, enemy. And we measure forests in terms of board feet, we measure land in terms of real estate, and we measure other people in terms of what they can or can't do for me. And then what are we committed to? So this is the question that I ask you. What are you committed to? What are you committed to? More and more spectacular backbends? What are you committed to? Or another way of phrasing that would be, you know, in what or to what do you entrust yourself? When you cut up the pie of your day, how much time are you spending being addicted to your own theories about reality, about other people, and ultimately yourself? Or those small moments where you feel complete and then suddenly the world is complete. Because the way perception works is it completely transfigures the world that you're perceiving. When you're angry, everybody is irritable. When you're, in a, when you're impatient or in a rush, everyone's going too slow. And it's them. 
waiting around for them to change. When is he going to change? And when you say, when are they going to change? Who are you committed to in that moment? So what we do as yoga practitioners is we say, here we are in a room tonight. Let's raise this room up so that it becomes an object of meditation. So we walk in this room. Maybe we could ritualize it. We could bow as we walk into the room. Or maybe pay more attention than we spend when we're fighting traffic or answering phones and talking on our Blackberries or... Do you talk on Blackberries or type? Type and talk, actually, at the same time. I don't even really know what a Blackberry is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Or you raise the body and you say, this body, which is always present, which is the instrument through which I can know reality, um, is something worth paying attention to. The breath is always present, even though it's impermanent. The body is always present, even though it's impermanent. Here's something to pay attention to. And then you go home and you have a bath and you wash your body And when you wash your body, you're suddenly washing the entire universe. Because that's what's presenting. That's what's materializing in that moment. And then there's a kind of completeness in that. As opposed to being committed to, which is basically just a softer way of saying clinging to, the momentum of our habits that keep us enclosed in a narrative about reality, a story about other people. Chapter after chapter of me projected in relationship, which is not actually relationship. That's not intimacy. So I thought what I could do tonight as a way of creating some kind of form to this investigation of commitment, because I don't have any answers, is um, I'm going to draw a little bit on a wonderful um, uh, uh, sequence of stages of commitment. that Norman Fisher writes about in terms of uh, monastic life and see if we can explore them and see how renunciation and commitment go hand in hand. Mm. Because spiritual practice is never a practice of accumulating something. It's always a practice of letting go. And it's one of the reasons why yoga will never be popular. (laughs) Because the great sages like Patanjali 
We're asking us to let go of everything. Letting go of the comfort that addiction brings. So that we can have direct contact with how things actually are. Not how we need things to be, how we need things to be. Always. Except when we don't. So, as you may guess, the first stage of the eight stages of Norman Fisher's description of commitment is the honeymoon period. (laughs) And I actually remember being in this room many times talking about the honeymoon period. But I want to offer maybe a different interpretation of the honeymoon period than the negative spin it usually gets in psychological circles, which is that the honeymoon really is a a, a profound and sacred doorway into practice. Because there are some practitioners who really know the honeymoon's bad, so then they get into relationships and they're like critiquing the honeymoon. <laughs> I remember when Michelle and I met, you know, and, and she'd say, "Oh well, but this is all impermanent, though, right?" <laughs> and I had this thought that so is the lake. The waves are impermanent, the motion of the water is impermanent, but you look out there and there's still a lake. So a lot of people, and how many of you are in the teacher training? So you know a lot of people, especially when they're in a teacher training and they start learning about all of the different techniques and all of the paths of yoga start to become really confused. (laughs) You know? Is this karma yoga or is this jnana yoga or what path am I on? Am I in the right school but I don't want to do jump backs so can I still be in this school and not (laughs) jump back all the time? That's for young people like I'm too old for the jump backs. So in a way, it's the same question. What am I going to commit to? So we can rephrase the question because a lot of people frame it in a different way, which is how do I enter the path of yoga? I know a lot about yoga, but how do I actually enter the stream? Do I enter in the first limb and really start practicing ethics and treat them as kind of vows or precepts? Or do I start with meditation practice? Do I have to go in sequential order? Are the stages continuous or discontinuous? 
And I think that's missing the point. Because yoga is intimacy. Mm. And so by definition, it's present experience. Atta, present experience. So you don't have to enter in India. And this is how the mind works. It says, oh, samadhi, that must be really high up. And so then the mind cranks up the techniques of yoga, and all religions do this, right? They, over time, they start cranking up their highest form, so it becomes perfect and inhuman almost. And so the mind says, "Oh, yoga, where is that yoga?" And looks everywhere for the yoga for present experience, except here. So we say, do you hear the sound out there of the cars? That's where you enter. Do you feel an itch somewhere in your body right now? That's where you enter. Are you in pain? Do you feel pain? That's where you enter. Is there sadness? Is there joy? That's where you enter. This room right now, together, here we are, this is where we enter. So this present experience is the doorway. And that's where you enter the practice. And what's appealing about yoga, I think, is that you have a practice here where you can enter into a direct experience of reality through the body, through the breath, through the mind, without having to make any theological commitment. We're not in a temple. We're not in a monastery. But in this moment, we're in community. So we raise the room up so that this is what we pay attention to. And that's the yoga. But then the mind can't handle the intimacy of this. So it starts looking somewhere else, reading between the lines, turning what I'm saying into a metaphor. Or listening just with the intellect. Oh, this is this is going to be my new philosophy. It means that sometimes we aren't paying attention. Sometimes, actually, most of the time, we're not paying attention to what's actually occurring here, now. So we need to create an object of meditation so that we can pay attention to something other than our habits of perception. 
So we start to treat certain aspects of our lives more formally. We get a little mat and we roll it out and now we say, I do my practice. So you, you raise that piece of rubber up so it's not just a toxic element in <laughs> our city <laughs> that will outlive your practice. <laughs> Even if you believe in reincarnation, that's <laughs> it's going to be there a long time. Um, and we raise it up to something other than something that we protest on another part of our day. You don't pay attention in the body the way you usually pay attention during the day by stuffing it full of food. Or by, you know, looking at your Blackberry and listening to your phone or whoever, I don't know how those work, but whatever people are doing. Or like it's what, what is this holiday? <laughs> it's Christmas. It's Hanukkah. And so we say, oh, Christmas is so nice. We get to spend time with our family, you know. And then we're so distracted from all the ghosts in the, in the windows of the stores and from all the expectations of our family and from all the presents we have to buy and from the social face we have to put on in social situations because everyone wants to know what you do and who you are and, and how you're successful. And then finally, after you eat the turkey, you're so bloated, nobody can even communicate with each other. And then you're sitting on the couch and it's like a relief. <laughs> Christmas is wonderful. Why don't we do this more often? You know? Everybody half asleep. <laughs> so that's what we mean by raise things up. So the honeymoon. Mm. So obviously the second stage of um, our practice of commitment is disappointment. <laughs> and betrayal. <laughs> betrayal is more like a projection of disappointment. Mm -hmm. It's like taking the fact that I'm disappointed and adding to it because they should have been more, they betrayed me. And we can see this on a lot of different levels. We can see this personally. I'm sure that's where you're filling in the blanks. We can also see this politically. You know, countries that we fall in love with, send them arms, and then suddenly they attack us and they've betrayed us. And it's them. Can't have anything to do with us. Isn't this one of the reasons why we love war so much? Isn't this one of the reasons why when soldiers are interviewed who are going to war for the first time, 
Overwhelmingly, they talk about how they have a lot of meaning in their life and purpose. Their life seems to have a kind of direction. Because when we get fueled up with nationalism, which is just another kind of ego, (coughs) it's really easy to create an enemy. And when you create an enemy, then you have a sense of self. And isn't that convenient? Because then I know who I am. But my me knowing who it is is dependent on the enemy. They depend on each other. And then I'm disappointed because that country is not playing the game as I need it to be played. So that's the second phase of commitment, is this projection of disappointment and betrayal. The third stage, um, satya. What does satya mean? Teacher trainings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, usually it's translated as truth. Um, Can we scrap that and put it in the compost? I I think truth is a bit of a dangerous word Mm. right now. So I like to translate satya as honesty. And um, I think that the third phase of commitment is the return of honesty, mm-hmm. where we can start to take our projections and eat them. Mm-hmm. Which is really where the yoga starts. That's where the possibility of intimacy begins. that's where we start to get a glimpse of interconnection that the enemy actually depends on an enemy (laughs) right and wrong depend on each other good and evil are interdependent you can't have evil without a a model of good and I would say that the way of starting to practice honesty is community. Is seeing how the whole first limb of yoga is tuning one into community. To seeing that honesty slides you into relationship because you weren't ever out of it to begin with. Even if you were calling the people you were in relationship with enemies or the forest a resource. or not a resource, a commodity. And this ties with the fourth phase, um, which is flight. We get a glimpse of the possibility of intimacy 
and then we're out of there. <laughs> I mean, isn't this the fascinating thing about intimacy? Is that it's the thing that we want the most is to connect with something other than our own theories about ourselves. And at the same time, it's what we fear the most. It's exactly what we want and exactly what we don't want. It's what we're organized to avoid. And at the end of every form of addiction is a kind of overarching desire for intimacy, for connection, (coughs) for love. But we tend to go about it in the wrong direction. You see. So you always hear stories the night before you're going to join the monastery, you fall in love. (laughs) (laughs) The day before you go on retreat, you get roaring (coughs) drunk. (laughs) Or the day after retreat. Sometimes before we practice, there's a chant that we chant, Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Bunaktu. Are you familiar with this, this chant? Yes. And there's one line in this chant that says, when we practice together, may we be protected. May we be protected. Because when we practice together as a community, aware of the effect of our practice in community, we're protected. Like sitting here tonight in this room, for two hours, you're probably not going to do anything really bad. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe because you're sitting around some kind people, you're probably not going to yell at anybody, steal anything, abuse anybody, shop. (laughs) Or maybe I'm talking and you're thinking, it's late in December and I really should have been out getting that list. So commitment and flight, they're interdependent. Freud says, in psychotherapy, resistance follows every step of the way. (laughs) But that's not what we usually do. We usually superimpose the honeymoon period on everything. Can we just get back to the honeymoon? (laughs) So you, you come in, you're new to yoga, and so you say, okay, now I'm going to leave behind all of my addictions. And you start, has anybody ever done this before? And you start practicing, and then you set up your yoga mat, and then you take all of your shadows, and you consciously and unconsciously put them into a cupboard, and then you lock the doors, and then you hang a beautiful tanga painting over the cupboard, set up your altar, and your incense, and your candles, and then you do your practice, you know. And then after like a couple of months, 
or if you have a bad teacher a couple of years, (laughs) then um, stuff starts slipping out of the cupboard. And then you say, my practice is not working. The practice is not working. This isn't the right method. My teacher is a fake. (laughs) (laughs) And then hopefully your teacher and your community will say, it's because your practice is working. It's because your practice is working that stuff is draining out of the closet. What are you committed to? Well, I'm not committed. I'm committed to the beautiful picture. I'm not committed to this stuff draining out of the closet. And the teacher will say, enter there. The conflict you have going on right now with your lover or with your child or with your parent or with your body enter there that's what you roll into practice and that's where compassion begins otherwise our compassion is a fake form of empathy a kind of technique that keeps the ego in its grooves as opposed to opening up to intimacy where our community, not just humans, everything that sustains us is going to fundamentally challenge those groups so that we are forced to practice renunciation even if we don't have teenagers. Can I read a little poem about this stage? This is by a, a poet who I'm just crazy about, uh, Billy Collins. Uh, he's an American poet, contemporary American poet. Um, and it, it, it's about it, it really captures, I think, um, just the simplicity of compassion and appreciation. Um, and kind of that basic uh, move in the heart toward connection, even if it's naive. And it's about a lanyard. Do you know um, what a lanyard is? In Canada, sometimes it's called boondoggle, where you take like um, different color uh, lengths of plastic, usually, and you weave them, and you can make a mala or a, some kind of bracelet and, pe- and you'd give them to like the boy you have a crush on <laughs> you know, at summer camp so this poem is called The Lanyard The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. 
No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past. A past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard, or wear one if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold face cloths on my forehead, then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. (laughs) Samadhi. This is a poem about samadhi. Samadhi is not some place you get to one day. A beautiful island near Thailand somewhere Mm -hmm. where you can retire with a big karma account of merit. (laughs) Samadhi is integration. It's the intimacy that happens when we're not clinging to a separate me which is the thing that we cling to with the most passion. Me, me, me. And the more we're caught up in self-reference and ideas about how things are, the more it's impossible for intimacy to burst forth. Even though it's there to begin with. So, flight is not actually possible. Have you ever tried to escape your life? If we had time, we could go through the room. And I'd love to hear some of your stories. I charge a bit more money an hour for that. But... <laughs> You can't escape. You can't escape this body. 
why would you want to escape this body? Why would you want to leave this mind? What about if instead of thinking of transcendence as getting somewhere, we start to think about transcendence as imminence? The way reality is always presenting itself. We're not trying to get anywhere else. That's another attempt in the mind to create security through stories that are external to the heart, to this moment. What if there's nowhere else to go? What if you're ready to give up your escape routes? What if you saw the way you turn your enemies into convenient escape routes? And instead of meditating on how they're so bad, you start to see why you need to construct them into the enemy to make them bad. And then you start to see fear of intimacy. Which brings us to the next stage. The dry place. The dry place. Are any of you in this phase? <laughs> or in your asana practice, do 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 some of you know the dry the dry place where you're kind of going through the motions? Mm-hmm. Let's rent another video tonight. Mm. Then we don't have to talk to each other. <laughs> the dry place. Mm. What happens in the dry place is that we start to. Um, we start to do our practice mechanically mm-hmm. where that mantra that you've been practicing just becomes something mechanical mm-hmm. where the breath is not interesting usually it's characterized by boredom as well or when we start looking around well maybe that other yoga studio down there that they never want me to go to has something really good to offer to take me out of this dry place. And what's dangerous about the dry place is where we start to look again outside of ourselves for something to give it juice, for something to create moistness. Does anybody here relate to the dry place? Mm -hmm. So what other kind of characteristics come up for you around this notion of the dry place? Not excited anymore. You're what? Not excited anymore. Not excited anymore. So how does that manifest? I don't look forward necessarily to going to my yoga classes the same way that I used to. Yeah, yeah. Second guess yourself. Second guess. So doubt, maybe? Some doubt. doubt. Keep making lists 
can look for accomplishment that's external. Yeah. And it's not satisfying. Yeah. Lack of trust. Lack of trust. So it's interesting as you so far, you know, there's this paradox you're describing so far where there's um, like a lack of trust, a lack of faith, maybe, a lack of excitement, which if we're talking about interdependence, supposes that there's supposed to be trust, there's supposed to be excitement. And in a way, part of moving through the dry place is giving up categories. Mm-hmm. Because the first function of the mind is to create opposites. Sometimes with some of uh, the people with whom I practice, I give homework. And so this month, one of the homework assignments was in our community was I asked people to um, spend a month not making opposites. Mm. Not creating opposites. Mm -hmm. The person who works next to you, the person who lives next to you, the person who uh, you wake up with in the morning, the person you don't wake up with in the morning, not making opposites, like, don't like, above, below, successful, not successful, better backbend, worse backbend. What would it be to move through even today, not making opposites, Could you imagine this? And in the Yoga Sutra, the only place that we hear about asana, this is one of the things that we hear, is that when one is present with what's arising, with steadiness and ease, then the dvandvas cease. The play of opposites come to an end. What does that mean? It means that this is where you enter. You enter here. And then there's no me outside. There's no inside and there's no outside. We're really strict in our... uh, Well, our community is not... I'll tell you about it later, but it's not strict at all. Um, But when we teach the form of practices like sitting meditation, we're, we're strict. So that people can practice a form without superimposing too quickly their ideas about how the form should be. And one of the practices we're very picky about is sitting meditation with the eyes open, not closed. When you sit and practice meditation with the eyes closed, it gives you the feeling that you can go inside to a place of stillness. And then the bell rings and then you come out again. But when you practice sitting meditation with the eyes open, when the bell rings, 
You're not coming back from anywhere. You're here. You haven't gone anywhere and you can't go anywhere except here. Drives people crazy. (laughs) Please, can I just go inside to my safe place? And then you have inside, outside. There was a hand up. I was just wondering about opposites. Um, I don't quite understand what you mean. Are you talking about judgments or is it different? There's no such thing as opposites. Are men and women opposite? I would say that if you think men and women are opposites, you should pay attention (laughs) to diversity. (coughs) Are north and south opposites? I mean, can you really find where north ends and south starts? So to watch where you create opposites and how the creation of opposites um, becomes a barrier to intimacy. So the seventh phase of commitment is love, which is the resolution of opposites. This is the easiest phase because you don't have to do anything. And it's the phase where you start to see that what you learnt in the dry place is really valuable. That sadness is just sadness. And it has a rightful place and is not something to get rid of. And boredom is boredom. And is, it has its rightful place. Our son is going to this free school in Toronto where there's no curriculum and it drives me up the wall. Because like you go there and kids are just like wandering around <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. And like as a parent it's frustrating, right? Because sometimes I don't want to be at school with him. I want to go do something. And so, like, I want a curriculum. So someone's going to take him and show him what to do. But then 20 minutes later, all the kids are engaged in something. And I've come to appreciate that there was something that I learned in the first few months at this school that I never see in our culture, which is kids learning how to work with boredom. Letting boredom be a a valid feeling without trying to escape our boredom.
you know, in, in traditional Indian philosophy, the things that there are three things that keep our negative habits going. The first one is greed. The second one is hatred. And the third one, moha, is delusion. But actually the root of the word moha can also be uh, traced to the word boredom. And really, as people and as a culture, we don't know how to work with greed. And we don't, we're not wise in working with our anger. And we're not wise in working with boredom. We don't know how to work with boredom. But in samadhi, boredom is interesting. Mm -hmm. Because it's another state of mind. And it's what's materializing at this moment is boredom. And it's sacred. And that's where you enter. Because that's what we're committed to. Well, it's like what's happening for a few people right now. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You tell me, what's boredom? A lack of attention, yeah, can be. Complacent? Who said that? Ah, I would say that we could probably spend a whole night trying to understand what boredom is because most of us don't feel it too much. I don't know if a lot of us really know what boredom is. Unless you sit with your eyes open. (laughs) (laughs) The eighth phase of commitment is the last one. Do you want me to go through them again? (laughs) Number one was the honeymoon. Number two is disappointment and betrayal. Number three was um, satya. Number four is flight. Number five is the dry place. Oh, I did skip one. Number seven is love. Oh, I skipped number six. How convenient. Freud would have something to say about that. Number six, actually number six and number seven really go together. Um, What moves the dry place into this place of love or the resolution of opposites? Can anybody guess? Acceptance? Close. A form of acceptance. Acceptance with a bit of energy. Appreciation. We're going to talk about this in the teacher training tomorrow. Appreciation. How lucky I am that I'm here. 
And underneath all those stories about my life that I've got going, I'm here and I'm alive. And then love bursts in. And number eight is just letting go altogether. Letting go of the form, letting go of not practicing the form. Letting go of our fundamentalism towards our practice and also letting go of our sloppiness. Everything is okay. I don't want to use the word bliss because your mind has all kinds of twisted associations to that word. (laughs) But letting go altogether, where you've entered, you're here, and this is what's arising, and there's no attachment. And because you're not clinging to your viewpoint all the time, you're present with what's actually happening. And then there's intimacy. You wake up in the morning next to your lover and you go, Oh, who are you? What have I done? (laughs) And then love is possible. Because you don't wake up in the morning and say, Oh, I know. (laughs) Another day of this. You don't bump into the person you're not getting along with and think, (laughs) You just turn your whole body into a question mark. And then you enter. And until you're committed to honesty rather than feeling good, your yoga practice won't go anywhere. Because it just becomes a form of spiritual masturbation. It becomes a form of consumerism. It becomes a form of materialism where you're adding things to get something as opposed to waking up to the intimacy that's here. Not your fantasy about yoga, but here. Stop. Nirodaha. Cut. Like a director says, cut. Mm -hmm. You see that person coming down the aisle at the local health food store (laughs) that you don't get along with, and you're like pushing your cart (laughs) (laughs) and they're pushing their cart and you're looking to see if there's like an alley (laughs) and then you're filling up with all of your history with them and then you meet them and there's no meeting at all it's a film but you see them and you start filling up 
And then the director comes in, cut, come back. The object of meditation is this moment. Come back, cut, nirodaha, cut. And then you've sent the mobile spinning again. And anything is possible. But when you're caught up in your viewpoint, nothing is possible because of your expertise, you see. Last month, the homework was not, um, the homework I just told you about, last month the homework was appreciation. And the homework was every single night, every evening, Tell somebody who's really close to you how much you appreciate them. And you're not allowed to tell them it's homework. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes the people closest to us get the worst of us. Because our binary thinking in opposites is so profound that usually we articulate very clearly all the things we don't like about somebody. And so the homework was to really think about what they love. What do they love? What are they really interested in? And tell them how much you appreciate what they're interested in. It's not just I appreciate the way you fold the laundry. That's that's nice to do. Especially to like a twelve year old or something. But to appreciate some of the things that maybe you don't articulate because they're not all the things that you love. I'm reminded all the time doing this work that you can't know what's good for someone else. Sometimes people ask me advice. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what I can do is to really see where someone shines and to do everything possible to help that person thrive for appreciation to flourish. (coughs) And that's how we enter the path. So that there's commitment, deep commitment. But the commitment is to renunciation. Especially renouncing our viewpoint in every moment we exhale. Do you exhale when you exhale? like to keep it at the level of the body 
And in every moment when you're exhaling, to really exhale. But Tabby Joyce calls the exhale little bit dying. What's dying? Well, this moment is dying. So don't hold on. There's nothing you can hold on to. And then suddenly you realize that by letting go, you're grounded and you're engaged. But it's with something with deeper roots than just a kind of virtual engagement that philosophy offers. We don't need any more philosophy in our culture right now. And we don't need more ideology. We need a strategy for subtraction, not addition, for letting go, for not accumulating more and more and more ideas and theories. So I want to say one more thing and then we can have a break and then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the things I've put in the room. Um, I wanted to read, um, my favorite yoga text is called the Yoga Vasishta, which was, it's a medieval text. It was written, well, people think it was compiled sometime around 1100 in this era. And um, it's about Rama trying to wake up because there's so much sorrow in his life. And um, at one point he asked Vasishta um, to comment on what his enlightenment was like. What was it like when you woke up? And I hope you'll hear in this uh, Walt Whitman. Through performing dhyana, concentration on the earth, I dissolved into the earth. While still retaining this feeling of the earth, I surveyed the landscape through my concentration on the earth, and I went down into the mines at the root of the earth, and I came to understand my body as the trees. The grasses, the mountains, the continents, and more, as my very body. As I took possession of this body, forests began to sprout from my body. I became adorned with cities, laced with populations like strings of pearls, with forests separated by villages, even the dark regions of cities became my bowels. My arms became mountain ranges and continents like oceans, like bracelets, all over my body, grass like hair. Tree tangled mountains held up by elephants. He goes on, this is like 
ten pages of this. Um, and I could go on. The point here is that his experience of samadhi is an experience of intimacy. That when the mind and body are still, and when we're not caught up in the momentum of I, me, and mine, we wake up to a deep feeling of connectedness. And we're at a time in our eco-existence that if our spiritual practice does not offer solutions to what's happening in our rivers and what's happening in our economy and what's happening in the tar sands and what's happening in our rainforests and in our communities, then it's not useful. A spiritual practice that is only about my enlightenment is not going to last. It's not helpful. Unless our spiritual work is waking us up to the fact of interdependence at a level that radically changes our feelings about being separate cells like ice cubes bouncing in a big jug of water, then it's not helpful at this time. The rideau is your body. The soil in this city is your body. Your body is made of water. Every molecule of water touches every other one eventually. Your body is 80% water. How you treat the rideau is how you treat your body. You breathe in air. How do we treat our air? That is intimacy. And what's interesting about this poetry of enlightenment is there's no metaphor. The body is the earth. And then from there, when we recognize interdependence, we act out of love. Because we want to take care of this earth like it's our own body. Because it's not like our body. It is the body. And so in yoga, when we say there's a cloud in the sky, it's not a metaphor for something. That's a cloud in the sky. A tree doesn't stand for something. An eagle doesn't stand for something. These teachings don't stand for something else. This is not a dream. This is where you enter, and it's not a dream.
So Walt Whitman, and then we'll have a break. I swear the earth shall surely be complete to him or her who shall be complete. The earth remains jagged and broken only to him or her who remains jagged or broken. Which is to say, you have a moral obligation to wake up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's have a 10-minute smoke break, and then we can come back and talk a little bit together.